<clears throat> I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 um, continues the thought that Paul was kind of running with in, in the last part of Romans chapter 3, which is that we are justified by faith, not by works. Um, and so to kind of introduce this, let's just think for just a minute about the fact that pretty much everyone today is looking for something new. Um, there's much more emphasis on new and shiny than there is on old and reliable. Um, if you have had to replace some valued kitchen appliance, maybe, maybe a, a, a refrigerator, or maybe you've had to go and replace your washing machines, what you learn now is that the new ones are virtually disposable. Um, they last for a couple of years, but then, you know, before you know it, they, they've got some problem, and it's some computer or electronic problem that will pretty much knock it out of contention of ever being used again, unless you want to just pour a lot of money into it. Um, it seems like people are focused on new just because it's new. So uh, even like with recipes, you know, recipes used to be this thing that was a time-honored tradition. You made it like your mother made it. You made it like your grandmother made it. Well, now people are looking for new recipes and new things all the time instead of sticking with some of the things that have been around a long time. Now, I'm not saying that everything new is bad, but what I will say is that not everything stays the same, and there's actually nothing new under the sun. We get that from the Bible. Um, so, <clears throat> for decades, we've watched the morality inside the church uh, slip to depressing levels, and this seems to be related to new ideas about God. Um, I've said this over and over again, and I will continue to say it. Wrong thinking about God leads to wrong living. When people think about God in their own terms, not biblical terms, but in their own terms, they can make God okay with sin. They can make God okay with their lives, the way that they live. There are, there, it just has to be worse and worse for something to be what we would consider bad anymore. And that is a problem, and that is because people begin to think differently about God. You know, there was... Um, uh, there was a thing I saw this week where somebody said, you know, uh, they quoted scripture, whereas if Christ is not raised, um, then, then we Christians are to be pitied most of all. Uh, and, and basically, whoever said that said, you know, Paul was right here. Um, and, then, and then someone responds, but is he though? I think Paul was wrong. You know, and what they said was that God um, is a God of love and he wants us to be people of love and to love other people. And as long as we're doing that, that's way more important than eternal life. And you know, I thought about that for a minute and it just, it's not. It's, it's, it's not, because, not because we're selfish and we want eternal life, but because that's God's glory. Us being fully redeemed is God's glory. Remember we talked about that last week. It wasn't that we were saved because we needed to be saved. We were saved because of God's glory. So to diminish our salvation, to diminish what God has done in our life, is to detract from His own glory. God saved us, and that is a marvelous and miraculous event. It is powerful, and it took millennia to make it happen. Don't diminish it. Don't let it go. Don't let it go because you would rather say, well, I'd rather just you know, love people and I'd rather be nice to people. And that's not even what any of them mean. Uh, they're just saying that because in, in, in that sense, the idea is I want to seem like I'm more about other people than I am about myself. Well, if salvation wasn't about yourself to begin with, you would understand. 
Salvation is not about us. It's about God. It's about what he has done. It's about what he continues to do. And it's about what he's going to do. And so as we look at this passage today, we're going to see, I believe, some of the very same things. So we saw in the first couple of chapters of this letter that sin is a big deal. That sin is prevalent, that it has affected the entire human race, and that unless we deal with sin, we are eternally condemned. So that is the biggest problem that humans will ever face. It can't be ignored, it can't be covered up, it must be washed away by the blood of Jesus. That's what we learned about sin in the first couple of chapters. So ultimately, modern Christians today, they don't want to face their sins, they want to just have an experience with God, something that moves them. So people today don't want to come to church and hear, you are a sinner in need of grace. They want to hear, here's this fun song that we can sing, or here's this great thing that you can do, or here's how you need to treat your neighbor. They don't want to hear, we have sinned. We have eternally damaged, destroyed our relationship with God unless Jesus steps in. That's not what people want to hear. So no experience with God that doesn't begin with a confession of and repentance from our sin will lead to salvation. No experience that doesn't start with confession and repentance will, will lead to salvation. It just will not do it. And so we have to be aware of that and we have to proclaim that in our lives. And we have to check ourselves and make sure that we are dealing with our sin before we can move forward. Because Paul spent almost three full chapters dealing with sin before he even presented the gospel. So that's an important thing. But after this life-changing faith takes place in our lives, um, it, it, is a, it is a kind of faith that will sustain us for the rest of our lives. And so that's the kind of faith that we're going to be talking about today. These are not new ideas. Um, these have always been around. These have always been part of biblical Christianity. It is, it is repentance. It is faith. It is not feelings. It is not experiences. Those things come after, but before we must deal with our sin, and then we got to believe in God. And so that is the way that God has always dealt. Not just all the way back to the New Testament, but even all the way back to the Old Testament, as we will see today. So the sermon, in a sentence, is this. God's plan of salvation for us has always been based on faith in Him, leading to a restored relationship. That's always how He's worked. It isn't something that just started with the gospel. It has always been that way. So that's very, very important for us. So I'm going to read to you uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 1 through 25. And that's the whole chapter. Um, but it is one idea. Paul is dealing with Abraham as an example. And we will look at that. So, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to, Abraham, counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? 
It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. To make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the father uh, of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that there should uh, bec- that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the word it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Okay, so we're going to be looking at the faith of our fathers. We're going to be looking at the faith of Abraham, and it starts with faith. It starts with his actual faith. So in this chapter, Paul sets out to prove that justification by faith has always been God's method of salvation. So that's what he's going to do, is prove that from the very beginning of God's dealings with mankind, and really the dealing with Abraham is the first dealing specifically with mankind in terms of redemption, in terms of salvation, and so that's where it all begins. So it's likely that many people in Paul's audience are Jewish, um, or at least very familiar with Judaism. And so that would be why he goes with Abraham as far as, as deep as he does in this example is because they knew who Abraham was. They knew the life that Abraham had lived. So he calls on the example of Abraham uh, and, and, and he seeks to determine how was Abraham justified? How was he declared righteous? So there were plenty of Jewish thinkers in the first century that actually believed that Abraham instinctually obeyed the law of Moses even though it would not be given for another 500 years. People believe that he, or Jewish thinkers of that day, we're not talking about just you know, kind of radical out there. We're talking about this was in the literature of the rabbis that Abraham had lived by by perfect obedience to the law even before the law was given. 
Now, me as a guy that's read, you know, Genesis, um, and, and, and I've preached through Genesis, and I know a little bit about the story of Abraham, I would point out a couple of times that he might have varied from that law. So right there, you think, okay, so, so there's maybe some problems with this. But that was basically the prevailing idea of the day. I would say that anyone familiar with the life of Abraham knows that he was a man of faith, but he did not always keep the law perfectly. Now, this is not to disparage Abraham because show me anybody else that's kept the law of God perfectly. You won't do it until you point at Jesus himself. So if Abraham had been completely obedient to the law, he would have reason to boast before God. So that's Paul's first point. What was gained by Abraham? Was he justified by his works or was he justified by faith? If he was justified by his works, he has a reason to boast. And really, if he's justified by his works, he's just like a worker or a laborer. A worker or a laborer that does the work, when he gets his paycheck, he doesn't say, thank you for this gift. That's what he's owed. But if one, on the other hand, believes God and he receives his righteousness, he receives his reward because of faith as, you know, that is given to him as a gift of God, then that is definitely justification by faith. That's not a worked or earned situation. In other words, God did not fall into the debt of Abraham because of his righteousness. Abraham didn't live so good that God owed him something. And none of us are going to live so good that God owes us anything as well. So even in the days of the patriarchs, salvation was not a thing that could be earned. It was considered a gift of God. So where uh, Paul starts this is by quoting from the Old Testament. Uh, this is in Genesis chapter 15 where it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. Uh, other synonyms are it was considered righteousness. It was therefore declared to be righteousness. So when Abraham believed God, and, and let's kind of go back in time just a little bit and think about the things that God was telling Abraham at that time. He was telling Abraham at that time, you're going to be the father of many nations. I'm going to take you to a land and I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. So there were some pretty broad promises there and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or reckoned to him or declared that he was righteous because of his belief. So he was purified by believing in God, not by the quality of his life. And that's an important thing because that's the same way that we are purified. That's the same way that we are cleansed. So Paul points to a passage in Genesis 15 which states that Abraham believed God and, was count and it was counted to him as righteousness. What this means is that God counted his righteousness and did not consider his sin. So he reckoned or he declared his righteousness, but he did not reckon or declare his sin. So that's what he's saying. And that's where Paul quotes David here in the Psalms where he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So he counted Abraham's righteousness that came through faith, but he did not count his sin, which came from uh, breaking the law, even though the law had not yet been given. And so that is what he's saying about Abraham, is that it was by faith, it wasn't by works. Because even Father Abraham did not have the works necessary to be saved. It was going to have to be faith. And that's his point there. And he's saying that this is the same way that God works with us even to this day. So we know that the price for sin would not be, from the point of Abraham, the price for sin would not be paid for many hundreds of years until Jesus would die on the cross. But Abraham was saved the very same way that we're saved today. It was faith, and God took that faith and used it as his righteousness. So Abraham was saved 
way before Isaac was born. Abraham was saved before God asked him to sacrifice Isaac. This is not about what Abraham eventually would do. That's faith in action. It is that Abraham had the faith to begin with. It was a life-changing faith. He was never the same after he agreed to obey God, after he agreed to believe God. So we can clearly see that the kind of faith that Abraham had um, was put, uh, that put him to work. It was the kind of faith that Abraham had put him to work, but the salvation he had came from faith alone. Abraham did a lot of things that God told him to do. Those things, that is faith in action. And we will be expected to do the same. Once you are saved, God will tell you to do things. He will put you in action. But to begin with, you've got to believe. If you just go to work without faith, it's like just showing up at Walmart and straightening up the shelves and then going to the manager and say, hey, will you pay me for this? No, we didn't hire you to do it, so we're certainly not going to pay you. And so what we have to do is start that relationship with God in faith and then he will put us in the places that he wants us to be, and he will lead us to work. There, that is the order of things. So Abraham was counted righteous before Isaac was born because he believed the words that God had spoken to him. You might say that, that Isaac probably never would have been born if Abraham had not believed God in the first place. Saving faith will believe the promises of God even when it all still seems impossible. Now, later, Paul's going to introduce some of the reasons that it was impossible, but even at this point, one man in the land of Ur, the land of just two letters, is told that he's going to be the father of a great nation, father of many nations. That's a difficult thing until you understand that it's God that's making the promise. So the next part of Abraham's faith actually was ritual, and we're going to look at this ritual for a little bit. So the matter of circumcision... Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a religious ritual. That's what it was, okay? So religious rituals can have meaning and impact in a believer's life, or they can be completely hollow and absent of faith. So Abraham was asked to be circumcised after he believed in God. So for Abraham, circumcision was meaningful because he had already believed in God, and it had been counted to him as righteous. So it's several years from the point that God begins making promises to Abraham that he actually asked him to be circumcised. And so for Abraham, that was a, that was a, that was a fulfillment or an outside obedience to something that had already happened in his heart. So this helps us to understand that a relationship with God begins with faith, not with practice. So Abraham's circumcision was an outward and visible attestation to the righteousness which had already become his while he was still uncircumcised. This is an important point for Paul. Abraham was not circumcised, so technically was not a Hebrew in that sense, before he was saved. So he was, he was saved as a Gentile. And then God made him into a Jew, made him into a Hebrew. So that means that God can save from the nations and bring anyone into his family. That's the big point that Paul is trying to make there, is that anybody can be saved through faith, and they will be brought into the family of God. So that's major, major, major uh, important stuff for him. So today when a person believes God uh, and is declared righteous, they do become a child of Abraham. Now this does not mean that the actual Jewish race is replaced in the eyes of God. It just means that we are brought in. Jesus talked about, you know, there, there are, I have other peoples. Um, the Bible talks about being grafted in to, to the vine. And so that is what's happening there. So we are children of Abraham, not by biological means, but because our faith walks in the same footsteps. 
And so, if you'll remember, if you can remember, when we're going through the early parts of Genesis, we were going through, you know, the table of nations and all these people and what they did. And, you know, there was, there was one that, that was the father of all who dwell in tents. And there was another who was the fa- father of all who make music. Well, in, in that case, it wasn't, he's the father of all these people because they're all his children, but it's because they are like him. They do the same things that he does. And so for us, we are the children of Abraham because we walk in the same footsteps of faith that Abraham walked in. That is what makes us children of Abraham or descendants of Abraham. So how does this circumcision talk even come, become relevant for us today? Well, baptism is the closest thing that we have to circumcision in the church today. It's an outward sign. It's something that we do publicly, um, and it's important for a new believer to be baptized so that they can declare their faith to God in a public setting. So it is important. But we know that baptism is not part of our salvation. It is an outworking of our faith. And so when we baptize someone in this church, we're not saying this is the grace of God. This is the moment that you're saved. We're saying this shows what has already happened on the inside. This displays publicly what has already happened internally. That's what we're saying when we baptize someone. And so circumcision worked in the same way back then, except it happened early on. It happened when the child was eight, eight days old. But for us today... We baptize after salvation so that we can declare that a work has been done. Something has already happened in our lives. So baptism is an act of obedience that only has meaning when completed uh, by or upon a person of faith. Baptizing unbelievers has no meaning. It's just just putting them in water. But once, once a person is saved... It is a powerful spiritual moment in their lives where they are recognizing that they have publicly declared before the whole world that they're going to follow God for the rest of their lives. That's what baptism is when it, when it happens, it occurs in the life of someone who has been saved. So the circumcision of Abraham was an important outward sign of his obedience to God, but his salvation long since had been secured by his faith. So the faith of our fathers, he believes, and there is ritual, but the ritual comes after There are very important religious ceremonies. Those things are not empty and meaningless if you're already a a Christian. But before, they are empty and meaningless. So we we must be publicly obedient to the Lord in every way. But salvation is ours because of faith in in Jesus Christ and God who raised him from the dead. That's where our salvation comes from. It's faith in God, not from the things that we do outwardly. So the rest of the chapter talks about promises that God made. God made promises to Abraham and how do we have access or how did Abraham have access to the blessings of those promises? So the promises that God made to Abraham and his descendants came long before the law that he commanded them to obey. So these promises existed, they were in place and even blessings were coming from these promises long before God gave the law to Moses. So Paul is pointing out the chronology of Abraham's faith. These promises uh, he received uh, and, and the giving of the law came way, way after that. And so that's, that's an important thing. 
So when Paul asks these questions, he expects his readers to know the answers. It's like how you build an argument. You ask a question that everybody knows the answer to, and, and then you go on and you build from there. That's, that's how that is working, um, and, and that's how Paul, Paul is making this argument. So God did not fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham because he perfectly kept the law. He fulfilled those promises because they are his word and because Abraham believed him. That's why God kept the promises, because the promises had been kept, or if they had depended upon Abraham to do something or be something, then it would just be like any of the rest of us. He would find a way to make a mistake. He would fall short, because we all fall short of the glory of God. That's something that Paul's already covered in this letter to the Romans. So, this is important. So if the promises of God are only fulfilled because believers obey the law, faith and promise lose all meaning. So what is faith and promise if we can't have any of that unless we are perfect? Because we're not perfect, so those would never come about. So that's, that's, the, that's a point that Paul is making here. So the law was not given as a way for us to access the promises of God. It was actually given to reveal the lawlessness of man and explain the wrath of God. Why is God angry about sin? Well, here is his law. Here is the holy standard. We know how we live, so then we understand the wrath of God against sin. So the promises of God are sure to be fulfilled because they are not dependent upon man's obedience. They only depend upon God's faithfulness. So long as God is faithful, his promises will be fulfilled. And we know that his faithfulness endures forever. So we know that God's promises will be fulfilled always. So everyone who has faith like Abraham can claim the blessings of the promises made to Abraham. We can all claim those promises. Paul mentions God's life-giving power uh, in the backdrop of Abraham's age. He says he was as good as dead because he was 100. That's Paul's words, not mine. Um, he also mentions the fact that, that, that Sarah, not only was she also old, she was younger than Abraham, but still in, the, in that time frame, but also she was barren. And so he mentions this in talking about how God can bring you know, life from, from death. But in the backdrop, even though he doesn't technically mention it, we understand, and he mentions it later, but we understand that also in that life to death backdrop is Jesus himself who was dead, but God made him alive because he had completed the work of salvation. So he mentions this life-giving power that God has. That's an important part for us is that he's, he's bringing that out. He is mentioning that. So when God made the promises to Abraham, it seemed impossible that they could be fulfilled. That's true of almost every promise that God has ever made. When God makes a promise or when God gives a prophecy, it all seems virtually impossible. Um, just imagine, um, read Revelation. You know, study a little bit of the first century, know what technology is there, what things are going on in the first century, and then read Revelation and read some of the things that are happening and try to imagine how a first century mind that had never seen man fly, that had never really seen true explosions the way that we know of them today, and all the other things that, that maybe you know, are commonplace today, just imagine what they would have thought. When God said those things, they were pretty much impossible. But we know they're going to come to pass because we can see all the technology, and we know that it's just going to get bigger and worse before it happens, and so we understand but they wouldn't have then. And think about the, the flood. When God told Noah it was going to flood, it had never rained. And so it's kind of a difficult thing for Noah to say, okay, hey, y'all, it's going to start raining. What's that? You know, and, and, then, and then explain to them that that's going to be a bad sign for them. 
People didn't understand these things. And we have to recognize that when God makes a promise, even though at that moment it's impossible, it's going to happen because God can keep impossible promises. No one else can. So we are all called to, same, to have the same kind of faith that Abraham has, but the circumstances uh, and the content of our faith will not be identical to Abraham. Abraham had the words of God, and he believed those words, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We have the words of God, but those words include the gospel, that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again on the third day. That's the content of our faith. So we have the testimony of the son's death and burial. So with the great work of salvation already completed, we know that God will fulfill all the promises that he's made to us. So when we think about what God has already done, you know, you think about the promises that he's made that we know have been kept, like completely kept. Then we can see that, that what's left is no greater. What's left, what God has to do next is not harder than the things that he's already done. And you might say, oh, well, he's got he's to finish the whole world and he's got he's to bring everybody under his dominion and things like that. Well, let me tell you, the price that he paid for salvation is greater than the things he has left to do. That is the pinnacle. What God did through Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of all. And so what we have to understand, not because of us, but because of Him, what we have to understand is that all of His promises are guarantees. They are all guarantees, and so we believe in Him. We trust in Him. So in this present evil age, it may seem like God is not in control, but we must remember that He has the power to fulfill any promise He has ever made. When I look around today... Even, even some of the things that, that, um, that you think, well, we would never wonder about this. You know, Jesus promised that the gates of hell would never prevail against the church. When I read that passage and I think about the state of the church today, I praise God that he made that promise because otherwise we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know. And, and, and there are so many more. It just seems like things are spiraling out of control. But you know, one thing this does one thing that the shape of the world does today is it helps us because we lose faith in man. There's nowhere in this book that tells us to believe in man. Nowhere. And so as we look at the world and we see the many ways that mankind through his evil, through his ambition, through his selfishness, through, through his greed, when we see the ways that mankind can sin, can, can go against the law of God, can go against the plans of God, we lose all faith in mankind. If you're sitting here this morning and you're hoping in a man, just watch the news for 30 minutes, you'll quit. The reality is we can only trust in God. We only can trust in Him. There is no other hope. There is no other reason for us to celebrate. There's no other reason for us to get up on Sunday mornings and worship. There's no other reason for us to go out on, on, on Mondays and, and declare Jesus other than hope in God. Because there is no person that is living in such a way that has, has the command that it takes to show us that we can believe in them. We have no hope outside of God. So the promises that God made to Abraham were against conventional wisdom. Remember, he's 100 years old. Sarah's 90. She's barren. You're going to be the father of a great nation. Kind of a little late to start that, especially since he's moving to a new land. Uh, all of those promises didn't make sense. They went against conventional wisdom. So remember that. But in faith, Abraham believed God and because the father and became the father of all who enter into a faith-based relationship with God. So his faith 
brought about great blessing. And I would say that your faith will bring about great blessing also. We are not asked to understand how God will fulfill His promises. It would probably hurt our minds to know how He's going to do it. But we are merely asked to believe that He will fulfill His promises. That's what we have to know. We don't have to know how. That's, that's just not part of what we need to know. But we do need to know that He will. We have to believe that He will fulfill His promises. So, we know, and we studied this already, we know that we cannot count on our own obedience to the law for salvation. We are frail humans. We make mistakes. We make them every single day. You know, it's much easier for me to see the mistakes of other people than it is to see my mistakes. But once I look, I see mine also. And I know that I am flawed just like everyone else is flawed. We make mistakes. We sin. We fall short of God's glory. We are not righteous of our own accord. We are only righteous because God has made us that way. Today, we've even learned that we cannot count on our religious ceremonies to save us. I wonder how many people today will attend church and they'll go home and they'll think, what a good person I am. You know, what, what a bomb for my conscience it is to be able to go to church. And so I'm good for a week. I can do like I need to and I'll just go back to church next week and it'll all be okay. You might say, well, well probably not, you know, probably not that many. But I would tell you it's probably a lot more. It's a lot more than you think. That, that if they go to church, they think, well, that's their, that's their good deed for the week. None of our religious rituals are going to get us to heaven. Nothing that we do here today will save us. Everything that's going to save us was done 2,000 years ago. And so that's where our faith needs to be. It's only by faith in a risen Savior that we can be saved. That's the only way that we have salvation. And so as we go out from this place... People are going to have all kinds of reasons that they think they're okay with God. And we have to be sure that we are speaking the truth that we find in Scripture. You know, there's a time and a place for everything. Solomon told us that as well. And there's definitely a time and a place for having deep theological discussions about some of the finer points of the Bible. But when we are in front of believers unbelievers, the only thing we need to be talking about is Jesus and Him crucified. Paul even says that in another letter. He says, I confess to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And that is, must be our attitude as well. Because this world, they don't, they don't have time for all the other things until they hear Jesus. That is the only urgent message we have. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this afternoon or this morning thanking you so much for your grace. For without your grace, none of us would be here. None of us would be in a position to, to be hearing about the gospel more, and, and definitely not being told to go out and proclaim the gospel. So I thank you for your grace. And Father, I thank you that it requires nothing but our faith. For Lord, I believe that's all I have to give. That is all any of us have to give is our faith. We cannot give you perfection. We cannot give you complete obedience. And the sum total, the sum value of our life, even that is not enough. We must have faith. And so Father, this morning I pray that you take the faith that we have and strengthen it. 
I pray that you magnify it. And I pray that we can declare that very faith to a world that's searching for something new all the time. Let us take this old, old message and declare it so that people will know that you have not changed. Your word has not changed. And their condition will not change until they believe in you. Let us be your messengers. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.